Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we'll be talking about what news organisations can do to improve press freedom. This week marked World Press Freedom Day, a chance to reflect on the barriers to a free press around the world. Seven out of ten countries have some degree of bad press freedom. That's the top-line stat from the latest World Press Freedom Index, published by Reporters Sans Frontiers, also known as Reporters Without Borders. We in the UK are not part of that seven, but our rank in the index has slipped ever so slightly. Here to tell us why is the UK Bureau Director, Fiona O'Brien. In the three out of ten countries with satisfactory or better press freedom, news organisations are not passive bystanders. They can influence the state of press freedom, and they should, if for no other reason, for the benefit of their audience. All of that's coming up, so don't go anywhere. Fiona, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming on to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Something our audience may not know about you is that initially you weren't sure if you wanted to head into journalism, but your your first gig in journalism was at the Kent and Sussex Courier, and that really got the ball moving um, for you. Tell us the story, please. That's exactly right. I wasn't sure when I left university um, whether I wanted to go into. I was thinking about diplomacy, maybe being, being an ambassador somewhere. I studied Arabic, so that seemed like a good, good potential option or perhaps journalism, which I was interested in, but had absolutely zero experience of. So I thought I'd get a, some work experience in a newsroom and see if I liked it. But when I went to the courier and asked them for work experience, they gave me a little interview and then without even sending me out of the room said, really sorry, can't give you work experience, but would you like a two year contract? At which point I sort of said, yes, all right then. And the next thing I knew, I was working for them, running one of their editions. Um, actually, when I got the first call from from my new boss to say, oh, I hope it's all right, but because of staff changes, you're going to be running your own edition. Will that be OK? I just said yes, hung up and then was like, what's an edition? I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. You must have done something to impress them. What was it? <laughs> I think they were desperate for staff, to be honest, Jacob. But I don't think it was anything more than that. But I loved oh, it. Super. Um, okay. Well, that that's super interesting. Uh, these days, you are the UK Bureau Director of um, Reporters Without Borders, and of course, you've just come out with your annual reports on the on the world press freedom uh, trends. Um, tell us some of the top line takeaways and findings of that, if you would, please. Yeah, absolutely. So every year we look at 180 countries and territories worldwide and give them a ranking based on the state of press freedom there. Uh, We look at a range of things to determine that ranking. So we look at the political context, the legal frameworks, um, economic context, sociocultural context, and also safety for journalists in those territories. So this year's index um, was really characterised. I think the most striking thing about it was unprecedented volatility in the rankings, with sort of significant swings up, significant swings down, linked to political, social and technological instability. Um, Some sort of key countries at the top of the index this year, you've got Norway for the seventh year in a row, um, has been at number one spot this year, followed by Ireland in second and Denmark in the third. Um, And then if you go right down to the bottom of the index, the last three places are occupied all by Asian countries, Vietnam, fallen formal places to 178. Then you've got China, which has the most, the highest number of journalists in jail worldwide, um, is at 179, and North Korea in the bottom position. Um, overall, out of 180 countries, only three out of 10 um, would be considered to have either a good or satisfactory situation for journalists. So that means seven out of 10 countries are in orange or red zones on our map. That is countries where there's a really difficult 
through to very serious indeed situation for, for press freedom. So quite a grim picture overall, record numbers in the most serious category. Yeah, since since the index began, right, in the last 10 years, this, this is the greatest number in that latter most serious red category. That's exactly right. And last year, there was already a record set. It was 28 countries last year. That's gone up to 31 this year. So the sort of direction of travel is really worrying, really worrying indeed. What's causing that? I mean, a number of things. But I think what's clear, if you look at the map, um, the areas of particular concentration of that red colour are... Asia and the Middle East. And I think what what that suggests is that authoritarian leaders leaders have been really emboldened by the actions of others in their Mm neighbourhoods. You kind of see the the spread of authoritarianism. Um, The other thing that's driving that change and especially driving that volatility is the rapid uh, development of technologies. Um, So the use of disinformation and propaganda um, often going hand in, not always, but often going hand in hand with sort of online harassment or intimidation of journalists has become really normalised as political actors in different parts of the world seek to sort of seize control of that public narrative. And that's really reflected in the index how quickly things can change, sometimes for the better. Some countries have leapt upwards, um, but some really down as well. And we we research the index in a couple of ways. There's a quantitative element that looks at how many abuses there are through the year. So something we're constantly keeping track of. But there's also a qualitative element, which is where we ask experts on press freedom. So that's journalists, academics, um, press freedom defenders, you know, hundreds of people around the world to answer a very extensive questionnaire on all those different categories that I mentioned at the beginning. So social context, legal context, etc. And this year, really strikingly, in 118 countries out of the 180 that we look at, mm-hmm. so around two thirds, most questionnaire respondents reported that political actors were often or systematically involved in disinformation campaigns. Yep. So that use of technology to distort reality and then to very rapidly disseminate that distortion is is a rising feature and one that's really difficult to combat and and a big concern right that's super interesting and we will circle back to that but you know immediately i I suppose our audiences might be thinking this sounds quite doom and gloom are there any silver linings any positive green shoots in in this report at all to to note There are four more countries in the satisfactory zone. So how we rank, there's a good zone, which only has eight countries in it this year, same as last year, where it's sort of uh, rated green on our map. But then there's this yellow category beneath it into which the UK falls, for example, uh, where it means that there are some problems. There are certainly things that could be improved, but on the whole, journalists can operate pretty freely there um, and, you know, fairly safely. Um, And the number of countries in that category has risen this year by four. It hasn't been as high as it is since 2016. So that's positive. Um, the other good thing is that for journalists in Europe, um, Europe is the best performing continent, perhaps unsurprisingly, but you know, very welcome to see that that's still the case. And the number of EU countries that have risen in the index this year is double the number that have come down in the index this year. So in Europe, a lot of things are sort of improving Um and that comes to hand if you look at some of the Eastern European countries, that sort of that rise comes hand in hand with a, a real realisation that what independent reporting can do is serve as a rampart against, you know, Kremlin propaganda so that the way to combat disinformation is with better journalism. And that does seem to be coming through in certain regions, at least. Just a quick one from me, and then we'll get back to the conversation with Fiona. There's two weeks left until our News Wired journalism conference, and we don't want you to miss out. Come for the panel discussions and stay for the networking. We'll be at News UK in London on the 23rd of May, 2023. Grab your ticket now on newsofwire.com and we'll see you there. I don't want to jump the gun too much into what we'll speak about later on, but 
when it comes to actually improving press freedom in a country, what can cause that? The very baseline, you know, the most basic thing is making sure that journalists can operate without threats to their lives or to, to without being imprisoned. And if you look at the countries that are in the in the red on our index, it is countries where there are governments who don't want to be held to account, you know, so that writing about politics, um, trying to, you know, ask questions of, of, of leaders, trying to present reality in a different way to the propaganda that leaders would like to um, present can end you in land you in jail and that's obviously the, at the most basic level but for countries you know if we're thinking about countries like the UK or other European countries where where um, basic safety is taken as a given um, legal frameworks are really important so having laws in place that ensure that journalists have a legal right to access you know access parliamentarians to cover protest to um, you know do all the things that we need to do as journalists um, is very important um, a diverse and pluralistic media is very important for media freedom. So if we think about press freedom as sort of a pillar of democracy, so, you know, the idea of democracy obviously being a political system where everybody is represented, in order for everybody to be represented, you need to have a, a plurality of voices in the media. Um, independence of the media as well um, is hugely important. So media that are uh, owned by many different people and also independent of, of government authorities is another thing we'd we'd look for and work for. What what impact does it have when we see mass job layoffs and, and closures of news organisations? We've seen quite a lot of that recently via BuzzFeed. What impact does that have on press freedom at all? I mean, I think as, you know, as RSF, we work, when we talk about press freedom, it's not just about the ability of journalists to move around it's about having a diverse pluralistic independent media and so of course um, layoffs of journalists are, are really bad news to have a media that functions effectively you need a wide range of people you need enough people to cover things I think a good way to think about this is what happens for example you mentioned BuzzFeed but let's think about the sort of damage to local reporting that's been happening you know not just in the UK but elsewhere as as the economic struggle gets you know bigger and, and more real uh, local newspapers have really suffered local broadcasters etc and what does that mean in practice that means that local experts aren't there to cover courts and to cover you know local governments and so they're not there doing the daily business of holding power to account and that translates then into the national journalism well and what, what you end up having is journalism system which isn't doing what it needs to do which is holding power to account so yeah it has a, a, a terrible effect trickle down effect in, in that sense yeah yeah for sure this year's index is characterised by volatility. 15% of countries have moved 20 or more places, showing that small changes can have ripple effects. In countries where there's a tendency for political actors to reach for disinformation campaigns to discredit journalists, these small changes can quickly become weapons against the press. There is perhaps no better example than AI, which has moved at great pace since the last index. There is a real fear now that political actors will start to use the technology as part of their disinformation campaigns. When we're talking about technology and the development of technologies like AI and, and others, it does two things which work in, in tandem, of course. But first of all, it becomes easier and easier to manipulate content. So, you know, you have, I don't know if you saw them, but recently, for example, there were some photographs of, supposed photographs of Julian Assange that were circulated where he was sort of looking, you know, I think he was wearing a, a, a straight jacket and looking beaten up in prison. They were completely false. They weren't real at all. But the quality, the sophistication of the technology, which creates those very quickly, by the way, these kinds of photos can be created now, makes it very difficult for someone looking at that to know immediately whether it's real or not. Um, 
And then, so the so the, so it's very it becomes easier and faster to distort material. And then it also technology is also an enabler of dissemination of material, right? So um, you know, increasingly algorithms rely on AI, for example, to decide what stories are going to be put in front of audiences. Um, things can get spread incredibly quickly, as we all know through social media, etc. So those two things acting together make it easier than ever for disinformation to spread far and wide. And what that means in practice then for audiences is that it becomes harder and harder to tell the difference between what's true and what's not, what's manufactured and what's real. Um, and that undermines good journalism. It, it weakens trust in journalism, which is another crisis our industry is facing worldwide as well. You know, this kind of growing distrust and animosity towards media um, it, it undermines ethical journalism, it undermines independent journalism. So it's a, it's a big challenge for the industry and one that, um, you know, we need to get to grips with. For sure. And the algorithm point is really in interesting because, it, it you know, when something is that um, alarming, I suppose, and, and untrue, it gets amplified quite loudly on social media. The report describes this really well, that um, social media is essentially quicksand for journalism in that it doesn't stay at the top for very long it can sink to the bottom pretty quickly absolutely we have a situation now where um you know journalism isn't promoted because it's excellent journalism or ethically collected journalism or you know good journalism it's really a system where the more outrage that's shown or the, the louder you shout, the more likely it is that your message gets carried further, which is a dream for despots and authoritarians. Let's um, zone in on what's happening in the UK then, if we can, for a moment. We're down two points to, to 26. Um, uh, we are in that satisfactory category of, of press freedom. And, you know, one of the key reasons for this is that the legal system is used routinely against the, the work of journalists. We had on the show not too long ago the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, talking about how slaps you know strategic lawsuits against public participation um has been used to discredit their work and to silence their journalists silence their reporting um that's one of the key drivers into why uh the uk is, is slipping down into press freedom right yeah it's, it's one of the reasons um i'll come back to slaps in a sec because it's a really important point but just to give you the picture in the uk so we have moved down here to 26th in the index from 24 mm -hmm. on a global context i think it's important to say that's still in the satisfactory zone you know we're not in a we're not anywhere near the zone of, of some other countries that we look at where it's incredibly difficult for journalists to operate independently we're not talking about that nonetheless the uk as a country which says that it you know espouses the values of democracy and, and you know a great believer in press freedom we would like to see the uk much higher up on that index and there are several things it could do to move up um in points score we've moved down just 0.2 so it's not a very different situation to last year um but you're right that the score that sort of out of those five criteria that we look at the one that moved downwards the most was the legal environment i think that's several things um so slaps are definitely a concern um basically what slaps are are you know very expensive court cases targeting journalists in order to silence them and they work to a certain extent because, you know, if you're an investigative journalist tackling a subject um, which is going to expose corruption or going to expose the wrongdoings of people with a lot of power and a lot of money, no doubt more power and money than you have as that investigative journalist, it is very off-putting if you think you're likely to end up in court and possibly face enormous fees. So it has a massive chilling effect as well as the direct impact on the journalist who's who's involved in the court case, of course. So Britain urgently needs anti-slap legislation. It needs legislation in place that basically would have 
an early dismissal mechanism so that as soon as something is recognised as a slap, it would be out booted out and it would not be able to go as far through the court system as it does. Sure, we don't get led down the garden path of having a trivial, expensive um, court case clearly with the intent of just silencing the reporting. Which is the whole point of these court cases. There isn't really a legal, you know, there's not no valid reason for these journalists to be in court. It's just a case of let's get them to spend as much money and time and stress them out as much as possible so that we put them off saying the things that we don't want them to say. Mm -hmm. Um, So Britain urgently needs anti-slap legislation. There has been a lot of discussion around it. To some extent, really, there seems to be a consensus behind the scenes in parliament and government that this is needed, but there's been almost no action on it. Um, And it has, you know, from our perspective, it's something that that we need to see soon. Um, The Justice Ministry has obviously just again changed hands. We've not been helped in recent years here. You know, COVID pandemic followed by a lot of turbulence in government, constant switchover of ministers doesn't help any Mm -hmm, of these things. mm -hmm. And someone needs to get a handle on it and and make sure that there is anti-slap legislation in place soon. The other thing I'd highlight on the legal context is bills that haven't yet been passed and aren't necessarily impacting us directly yet, um, but that are passing through the Houses of Parliament. So the primary one that's been in the spotlight this year that's been of concern to us at RSF is the National Security Bill. Um, In initial drafts, it contained no protections at all for journalists. And there were sort of certain clauses in there that could have opened journalists, especially journalists from foreign um, media um, working here in the UK to being accused of being spies, being accused of espionage for their investigative work. Right. And the line that there has now, after a lot of campaigning from us and other other groups as well, um, some some small changes have been made that at least acknowledge the need to protect journalists. But from our perspective, they don't go far enough. The protections aren't aren't nearly robust enough. The language we get back from. Um, parliamentarians when we say this is that oh you know the intention isn't to pursue journalists we're not we don't have any malicious intent but that's that's a nonsense because of course laws have to have to be strong enough so that they can't be abused if there are possibilities within a legal framework to repress journalists at some point we know we've seen it in other countries the law will be used to do that so we'd like to see much much more watertight um, protections in embedded in these laws and others that are coming up like the online safety bill is going to come through the media bill etc and I think that legal score in the index probably reflects concern among our expert community about though that sort of change in legislative atmosphere if i can call it that even though these laws haven't gone through yet and of course in the uk it comes in in conjunction with a sort of broader climate of repression of civil liberties you know right to protest all these kinds of things which aren't directly linked to journalism but have that same kind of atmospheric pressure of of limiting civil space you touched there on the online um, harms bill of course and um, it is really we talk about the environment for journalists to do their work, to be able to operate. You know, abuse of journalists is a, a real issue right now as, as well, um, online and, of course, offline too. And that's part of the reason too why um, press freedom is is slipping a bit. It's a huge issue. It's not just an issue in the UK, is the first thing to say. It's something that, the, 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 you know, people are grappling with around the world, linked also to kind of a fundamental crisis of democracy that we have, this kind of polarisation we see in Western societies where, you know, you're either for us or against us kind of idea on every single contentious issue. And journalists are often on the receiving end. So particularly journalists who write about topics, writing about politics, writing about uh, LGBTQ plus issues, writing about, um, you know, 
uh, women writing, women journalists are particularly targeted. There's some horrendous statistics when a study was done by UNESCO a couple of years ago. It wasn't about the UK specifically, it was about women around the world. But a, a horrendous proportion, over 70% of women in that report, report and, and they had interviewed more than 900 people, so you know, it was a really decent survey size. Um, over 70% of them reported having faced abuse. Um, it's easier than ever before, because it's all in the digital space, to be the perpetrator of those kinds of abuses. But to be on the receiving end is horrendous, not just on a sort of health and mental health level. But if you think of the chilling effect, so... Imagine that this happened to you in the workplace, that somebody came up and said these things to you or treated you in a certain way. There's no way that it would be acceptable. But because it happens on social media, it kind of feels a bit to us like this untouchable space. But if you think about the reality of journalism today, social media is one of our working environments. You know, it's where we go to collect information. It's where we go to publish our stories. It's where we interact with each other. So it is happening in the workplace. And if a uh, as an example, say you're a female journalist and you get some really horrendous gendered abuse on Twitter, let's say, and nothing's done about it and your employers don't really know how to handle it and you don't feel cared for in that environment. Probably what you're going to do is self-censor. You know, I'm going to step back off Twitter a little bit. I'm not going to touch on certain subjects. That's that is absolutely you know terrible because that's uh, it, it's impacting on all of our freedoms. And some very high-profile women journalists have done that, namely Nadine White, um, who was at The Independent, subject to a lot of abuse um, brought on by it by an MP, and she came off social media for a long time. She's quite unresponsive there now. Absolutely. And and you can't... I would never blame her for that. I totally understand that decision. I'm no doubt in her position would have taken a similar one. But that is, you know, silencing... It's stopping her from doing her job as a journalist. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know... Social media isn't for us, for journalists... Being active on social media isn't some kind of luxury that we do in our spare time and is, you know, yep. we're fair game on that. It's part of the place in which we work. Um, so it needs to be, I think, uh, uh, because all these changes have happened really quickly, um, you know, we're talking about matters of years, really, since this stuff has kind of really come to the foreground. Um, as an industry and as governments, people have been sort of slow to catch on to it, to really realise the scale of what's happening and to come up with solutions. Um, and I think that's something that's kind of work that rapidly needs to happen because it's, it's only going to increase over time. It's something that's very much on the rise. Now, it's not the case that news organisations cannot affect press freedom. Kelly Wallace of the Guardian Foundation wrote this week that there are three ways that press freedom can be improved from here on out. The first is that news organisations need stronger and more resilient business models. Whilst there's been a lot of talk about the UK government supporting local and independent news organisations in recent years, that also makes them dependent on the state to survive. The next is diversity, both in terms of inclusive newsrooms and diverse media ownership. Three news groups dominate the British media landscape in News UK, Reach PLC and the Daily Mail group. With greater choice for news consumers comes a more informed citizen. Finally, better news literacy amongst news audiences will make them more critical news consumers, questioning the information that is on their screens. But Fiona says there's one more factor to consider. Trust. You know, there's been this growing climate of animosity towards journalists, even hatred of journalists, really, in, in, in certain areas. Um, and we need to think about ways to restore trust. Um, there are many reasons, some valid, some utterly invalid, why journalism has lost trust. Um it's a, an increasingly difficult battle to fight, given the rise of, you know, fake content, etc. that we've discussed or that we touched upon already. But it's really important that we learn how to do that, that we learn about sort of educating audiences as well, helping audiences to recognise 
um, ethical, reliable, independent media as opposed to fake content is part of that. Um, at RSF, we have a programme um, that, that has been developed in recent years called the Journalism Trust Initiative, for example, which is a way for media to self-certify it's about the way they gather information rather than what they produce but to you know show themselves to be independent reliable um, ethical producers of journalism and that kind of in initiative can perhaps help an audience to become more literate but it's certainly a discussion we need to open up within the industry and to be aware of and, and face together yeah and I think the trust element is particularly key because if as you were saying before truthful reporting is not necessarily going to be on our phone screens as 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 abundantly as we would like there needs to be that relationship where audiences are going to be thinking about proactively going to the news and being able to trust it as well you know as as part of their uh, information consumption yeah and it's increasingly difficult and confusing as an as a as a reader or as a consumer of news you know first of all just because the bombardment of information we all face every day um you know so many different channels um i don't mean media channels but you know so many different platforms so many different channels producing news etc so where do you go as a consumer and then throw into that mix this theme that we've been talking about that came through so strongly in the rsf index this you know proliferation of fake content and of course you come away a bit confused and and not particularly trusting i'm sure you also have you know many friends who would you know very quickly press a retweet on something or you know share something on social media without checking if that photo is real for example first or verifying information and we all have to learn to get out of those habits to really question what we're doing and where we're getting news from mm. one final place to leave it then you know we've we've kind of explored the idea that press freedom isn't is is partly within our control partly not what's one takeaway maybe for our audience or something they can do their role in all of this that is within their power what would you say I think what I'd say, thinking, you know, speaking to an audience here in the UK, is that one thing I learned through the, my role at RSF, we look at the whole of the globe. And as we said earlier, in the UK, we are in a, although there are lots of things that could improve, essentially, we're in a, a, a very privileged position. We live in a democracy where we have the right to get our voices heard. And what I would say to anybody interested in these issues of press freedom or anyone who feels that it's something that government should be paying more attention to is make your voice heard, you know, engage with your MP, speak to your representatives and ex let them know that this is something you care about. Um, mm -hmm. Don't let press freedom become something that government can ignore, can write off, uh, because press freedom is, is all of our freedom. You know, ultimately, it's not about protecting individual journalists or helping journalists to function and have a very nice life. It's about protecting the right of citizens to information. If journalists can't freely, safely, independently collect information and share it with the public, the public doesn't know what their representatives, their government are doing on their behalf. And that's what's at stake here. So my one piece of advice would be to engage. Super takeaway that, Fiona. Thank you ever so much for your time today. And uh, thanks for jumping on the show. It's a pleasure. I think Fiona summed up the imperative really well just there. Improving press freedom is fundamentally about helping audiences become better informed. Another reason for news organisations to stand up and affect change is because that it's a luxury that many journalists and newsrooms don't have around the world. Despite the existing legal and online challenges towards the UK press, we're relatively privileged, so let's use it for good. I'd love to get your thoughts, especially if you're working in a country with a very different press freedom situation. Find me on Twitter at jpgjournalism or email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. 
You can check out all of our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>